Hi, my name is Nicole J. Georges. I'm a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist staying in Los Angeles, California with my half-blind chihuahua, Panyo Georges. <coughs> this is our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters, Refugees, Journalism Comics, and Taking a Break from the Internet with comics journalist Sarah Glidden. Stay tuned. Sarah Glidden is a comics journalist and a graphic memoirist. She is the author of the book How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less and most recently, Rolling Blackouts, Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. We talked last Sunday while everyone was at the airport on the heels of the recent ban on refugees and immigrants from some very specific countries by our new illegitimate president. I hope you enjoy my conversation with comics journalist Sarah Glidden. Eric Glidden, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here. We are talking on Sunday. What is today's date? The 29th? Today's yes. the 29th. Uh, so what's hap- this is going to come out on Friday, and it's oh possible God. that something crazy will have happened or changed by then. It's probable, but given the pace that everything's been going. Today, a lot of people that we both know are at the airports protesting because our new president, our new illegitimate president, has put the Muslim (laughs) ban into effect and also banned people from several countries that had nothing to do with 9-11 but do not represent his uh, interests, his his financial interests. Yep. That's... (laughs) It's like, I don't know, I was in a state of shock I mean, I shouldn't have been. None of us should have been. This is what he said that he wanted to do. Um, and I think none of us believed that he would actually do it. So it's kind of our fault for not listening. But, yeah, I was still shocked. I um, I saw this it thing. It was very bad. I think I saw this thing in Tablet. It could have been somewhere else, but somebody was like, you know, I talked to my grandparent who, you know, lived through World War II and was Jewish and they gave me some tips about, like, you know, the tips that I gleaned from learning about their history and that we could apply to this administration. And one of the tips was treat every poisoned word as a promise. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. I thought was really valuable because speaking with my Syrian-American mother who voted for Donald Trump, um, oh my gosh. she's like, honey, he's not going to do that stuff. He's, you know, politicians, they're full of hot air. They're not going to do any of those things. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people just assumed that someone would stop him. Like, I was doing a, I was doing an article last summer on Jill Stein's campaign for the NIB. And so I was following around um, her on her campaign stops. And I talked to a lot of, like, Green Party volunteers. And, you know, I would ask them things like, well... Aren't you afraid of what would happen if, you know, Trump became president? Like, doesn't this terrify you? And they would say things like, oh, well, you know, 
none of the things that he wants to do would be able to happen because people would rise up and get so outraged that he would be stopped from doing any of them. Um, and because we assume that, like, certainly, like, reasonable people will be surrounding him and, you know, he'll have just kind of your average politicians taking these roles in his cabinet like we always do. But um, that is not the case either. And there is nobody stopping him for now. Like It's just, it's uh, really everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Yeah. I'm not in a good mood this week. No. Um, so I have mentioned this on the podcast several times, but after the election, my friend Beth Pickens made a pamphlet called Making Art During Fascism. And she has started leading these support groups for artists who, after the election, were like, should we just stop making art and become lawyers? Or, <laughs> you know, like, go into politics or do something that really matters? And she's like, no, you're artists. You need to keep making art. That's what you do to, like, process your emotions and live in the world and interact with the world. And so you will personally get depressed and despondent if you don't make your art. But let's talk about, you know, other things you can do also. Uh, but you, in particular, have are really... I mean, your work has gotten increasingly political or more towards the journalistic end of things. Mm -hmm. You've kind of gone from memoir to journalism and then somewhere in between, which I really appreciate. But how would you describe your job or what you do? Uh, my job, well, you know, it really depends on the project I'm working on. I do consider myself a comics journalist now. Mm -hmm. um, and really before the election, I was trying to stay out of kind of partisan politics. Um, you know, I had my opinions on Trump and Clinton or, you know, the Green Party or whatever, but I thought, like, I wanted to still try to maintain some journalistic objectivity, even though I don't think that there is objectivity in journalism. I wanted to kind of stay... I didn't want to be telling people who they should vote for or, you know, anything like that or to be kind of, like, campaigning for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, but since the election, you know, that's kind of gone out the window. I think, I think, and I've seen a lot of journalists kind of let, let go of that. Um, you know, things are so extreme that that kind of pretense that you have as a journalist to like, well, I'm going to stay out of the fray. Um, I'm not going to be an activist or rallying people. It kind of doesn't really matter right now. Um, I don't know if I'm answering the question, but... I don't, so basically it's like I went from trying kind of like zooming out in the journalism kind of work to now I'm a little bit zooming in back again to like really combine um, the newsy stuff with my opinions a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that's going to last forever. It's just been like the past week. All I've been doing is drawing about, um, you know, my feelings about what's going on and also kind of trying to unpack the news a little bit for people, especially when it comes to refugee issues, because it's something that I spent six years <laughs> working on. Um, and so I feel like, oh, I have some expertise in this. I should talk about it. Um, but yeah, I guess I consider myself a journalist. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's talk about how you interacted with refugees for your book, Rolling Blackouts. Sure. Well, um, so for that book, um, you know, for people who haven't read it, I basically 
wanted to make a book about how journalism works. And I have some friends who started a journalism organization um, called the Seattle Globalist. And they're based here in Seattle, but they were able to do some kind of larger scale international reporting projects. And so I asked them if I could go with them on one of their next reporting trips and just shadow them and observe them and do a comic about how journalism works and, you know, how they find their stories and how they talk to people. And so they were planning in 2010 to go to Turkey, northern Iraq and Syria to interview displaced people, um, mostly Iraqi refugees, but people who had been affected by the war on terror. Um, And... You know, that was the reason we were in Syria was because at the time in late 2010, Syria was a safe place um, and it was a it was a refuge for Iraqis. So Iraqis fleeing war in their country went over the border and were living in Syria and were also living in Jordan. Um, And, you know, that book took five and a half years to do. And in all of that time, I was constantly, you know, I was using the information that we researched while we were there and the interviews that we did there, but also I wanted to give some kind of overviews on the refugee process, like, you know, really kind of distill refugee law in a way that people can understand. And so that meant doing a lot, a lot of research. Um, And it's like, it's amazing how with nonfiction comics, you know, you sometimes have to read like these like whole books or like, like an academic paper just to be able to condense something into one page of information. Like you won't even use most of that information, but you have to make sure that you're getting everything right. So the refugee issues really became like um, just a part of my life from working on that book. Um, And it's something that I care about a lot. So when this happened this week, it was just like, I had already been upset about, about how refugees are treated. And this was just kind of like, um, pushing me over the edge a little bit, I guess. Are there people that you're in contact with or know that are affected by this ban or by them not allowing even people with green cards from certain places back into the country? Not me directly, friends of friends. Um, but when it comes to refugees, like I think it's important for people to understand also that most refugees aren't on their way here. Mm-hmm. Um, only 1% or less of refugees worldwide ever get resettled in a third country like the U.S., Canada, or in Europe. Um, most of them are living in like places like Lebanon, Turkey, um, different countries in Africa house tons of refugees, um, Pakistan. So, you know, most of the countries that have to support these really huge populations of refugees are also poor countries. Um, and so nobody that I know was on their way here as a refugee. I I know some of the people that we talked to already came to Canada or to the U S. Um, but no one I know was actually like in transit and is affected by this, but I mean, it affects, I know a lot of people who work for the UN, um, who are really distraught about this. Um, you know, I know, I certainly know people who are, you know, citizens of these countries that are on the banned list who, if they wanted to come here, could not. Um, but it was already, you know, I think it's also important to us, for us to realize that it was already really hard for people from these countries to come here as students or um, as visitors. Like, it's not easy to get a tourist visa 
if you live in Libya, um, yes. even before Trump came into office. And, you know, Trump made things worse, but he didn't invent this problem. So it's it's really frustrating. Uh, one, so I, I asked my listeners for some questions, and one of them asked, what can Americans do to support refugees and Palestinians? Mm-hmm. Well, I think staying informed, um, which I think people since the election are doing a, a good job of. I know a lot of people are subscribing to, to newspapers and asking themselves, like, well, what are good um, news sources? Like, where can I find the non-fake news? And keeping informed like that, I think, you know, Democracy Now! is one of my you know, favorite news sources. I think it's um, very good. And it really tries to, like, look at what's going on all over the world. Um, but also, you know, the same thing that people have been doing the past couple of months, like, you know, calling your members of Congress and telling them what issues are important to you. Um, because... It's not just about accepting refugees here. We need to do a better job of lessening the conflicts that are making the refugees flee. So stuff like climate change, which doesn't seem like it has much to do with refugee crises, really has a lot to do with it. A lot of people who are you know, fleeing their homes are doing it because the places that they live are no longer inhabitable Um for people, a lot of conflicts are kind of exacerbated by climate change, by drought. Um, drought had a lot to do with the with the Syrian civil war. And so I think that, like, kind of we should be a little more holistic about how we think about the problems of the world. You know, they're not just, you know, LGBTQ rights over here and climate change over here and refugee stuff over here. Like, all of these things are really part of a, a bigger picture. And so I think you know, keeping yourself informed about a little bit of everything and being active in the area that, you know, you are best suited to. I think that's how we can can get involved. I think that's really valuable. Um, another, another listener asked, how is your internet Shabbat? Can you, verb- <laughs> can you verbalize your, what you talked about in your tablet piece and elaborate on it? Yeah. Well, it didn't work very well. Um, I have a big problem with um, reading the news and being on social media. Um, And this isn't new. It's been going on for a long time. Um, You know, especially starting with what was going on in Ferguson. Like, I don't know, like, you know, do people remember 2014? What a crazy, intense year that was with just like, you know, Black Lives Matter getting a lot more um, in the public eye and like all of these protests. And you really just wanted to like, you wanted to be there. And if you couldn't be there, you wanted to be watching. Like it felt like it was very important to be witnessing these things and to be spreading information among, you know, your friends. And so I think I have a big problem with like breaking news and needing to know what's going on and needing to share that. And part of it is like when you're, when you say like, okay, I'm a journalist, you feel like it's part of your job to be paying attention to all of that stuff. And it can really drive you crazy. Um, so with the internet Shabbat, I was trying to give myself 24 hours a week where I don't look at the internet and I don't, um, I like just tune out of that stuff and kind of read books and pay attention to my 
partner and my friends. Um, but, and it worked for a little while. Um, but then the election started heating up and, um, I kind of, I decided, well, I'll try doing that again later when things calm down. Um, but I do think it's a good idea. I think a lot of people I know are talking about, you know, stepping away from Facebook, stepping away from Twitter and, you know, remembering that they do have real lives outside of this, the place that is the internet. Um, so I'd like to try again, but it's really hard. There's just like every morning you wake up and you're like, what has happened now? Like, what has he done in the three hours, different time difference between, you know, the West coast and the East coast. Um, so I'm still working on that. Yeah. It's really, it's really challenging. Um, yeah. I, you know, one of my friends was like, cause she was like, you know, my getting depressed, my getting as depressed about the news as someone who is directly affecting isn't helpful to them. But exactly. That's me, really true. She was like, but me fortifying myself and taking care of myself and then using that overflow to take action for that person mm -hmm. is helpful. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that too. You know, I'm not directly affected yet by any of the stuff that Trump is doing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think a lot about like, okay, right now I have the privilege of not having to worry about my safety. And so that means I need to, to use this for good. Like exactly what your friend is saying. Um, and it's, it's easier said than done, but it's so right. Like, you know, we don't like we, we can not panic if we try really hard. Um, and so I think that's important to do. Um, I want to talk to you about comics as a journalism tool uh, so one of, you know, one of my listeners wanted to know if you were making, they noticed that you were making shorter comics and that your comics seemed to be, um, more like they're more black and white or in pencil as opposed to mm -hmm. fully, you know, fully illustrated, full color, like beautiful hardbound books. And they were wondering if you did that in response to having done a giant book. Um, a little bit. I mean, it's going to be a while until I have another big project. Um, but part of it is just like, I want to be able to put stuff out there in a more immediate sense. Like I feel like there's a lot going on right now um, that just needs to be kind of talked about now, like within a couple of days instead of, you know, usually a short comic for me that is in color and stuff takes like, you know, at least a couple of weeks. Um, and so these quicker things have just been my way of processing what's going on as it's happening, but I'm still working on the longer projects too. Um, I just happen to be in between, <laughs> in between big projects at the moment. I've just started kind of researching for the next big thing. So well, that's exciting. Yeah. But yeah. I like literally two years ago before the Paris attacks, I started this comic about like my Syrian American identity and like how groovy it was to like connect with all these Arab American women who all are interested in comics who invited me to their comic convention. And I was like, this is awesome. And like talking to my mom about her church sponsoring Syrian refugees and whatever, whatever. And then, so that was what the comic was about. And then sounds cool. 
thanks. And then the Paris attacks happened. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, the Syrian refugee thing was, like, not on the table anymore. And then, like, basically, comics take so long that the end of the comic has changed, like, 15 times Yeah. since mm-hmm. then. And so I'm kind of at this weird standstill because comics are, like, a beautiful way to express a sentiment with journalism, but they're also so... They take so long. They're so laborious that they end up feeling they don't... They serve a weird, different purpose. Oh, totally. And, you know, I definitely had that problem with rolling blackouts where, you know, we were there in the end of 2010. (laughs) I finished working on the book a year ago. And so a lot happened in between that time and the other... And when I finished it. But you can't keep on... You know, time will always keep moving on. Like, no matter whether you're working on the book or not. So I think that it's totally fine to have things take place in a certain time, even if things have changed afterwards, because that story still sounds amazing. It doesn't matter if, you know, there was an attack in, an attack in Paris. Like, that has nothing to do with with your Syrian background or these people who you're talking to or your mother, you know? Like, I think you just, and I think it's more important now than before, you know, when people are... When things like this happen, when attacks happen, people are afraid, and I get it, you know, they want to be safe, but it, it closes them off to other people, and it makes them feel like they know exactly, like, you know, they make generalizations and stereotypes about huge groups of people that, you know, have nothing to do with those terrible things, and so I think at times like that, it's super important for someone to make a work that is like, look, Syrians are people, <laughs> like, um, they they yeah, truly yeah. are. They're truly just people. I swear. I swear. They're like some like I swear. When we, were, I cried when we left Syria because I loved it so much. Everyone was so nice. Um, like I just had the best time there. I thought I would go back and like you know, it's it's really devastating and must you know must be for you too since you know you have family ties there, but. You know, when a war when a war breaks out in some faraway place, if you don't have a context for that, you just imagine that somehow it was meant to happen there, or you know that things were just set up for it yeah. to be embroiled in civil war, or that like people are warlike there. And the scariest thing about the Syrian war is that you know it didn't seem like that could happen there. Um, and I feel like it should be a lesson for us here. Like, you think that, you know, there could never be a war like that here. But, you know, people are people everywhere. So I don't know if I'm making any sense. But yeah, I think you should make that. I think that book sounds great. Thanks. Well, <laughs> it was originally supposed to be this short, com- this short kind of feel good comic. But then mm-hmm. more and more kept happening. I was like, is the end that then, you know, oh, so now like everything's different and the same people who were embracing me at this comics conference are now getting threats from like white American people that they're going to like bomb their museum or is the ending like, I was like, what's the, are the endings like, Oh, I can never go visit Syria or like the things that I didn't visit aren't there anymore. Or like what? Anyway. Yeah, maybe. So I'm just like, the the end keeps changing as I'm like, Oh, Damascus is gone. Or like, you know, like things are like, beautiful historic like the world's oldest cities are getting totally fucked anyway yeah and it's interesting because you know 
I don't know if it's an American thing or what, but we we don't like sad endings very much. Yeah. Um, you want to be able to find some kind of like, you know, even if things are bad, you want to, and it's a tragic, you want to find some like, well, there's hope somehow. Um, but sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's just bad. And, uh, you know, at least if you end things that way, then people will have already finished the book. They've already <laughs> bought it. Get <laughs> your money. Well, that's kind of how I felt at the end of Calling Dr. Laura. The epilogue ends up being very sad. Mm-hmm. And I remember my agent was like, uh, people just want to know that you're okay. Yeah. At the end of this. Um, and I was like, but I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I love drawing sad stories actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I walk around and I'm a pretty happy person in general, but I, it's because there's this, this balance. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, things are sad. Like you have good to talk about them. Like I metabolize them this way through storytelling. Like the things yeah. that we've seen are not always like, okay, and, and, but don't worry. Everything is okay. Yeah. Everything's exactly. going to be great for those Syrians that are stuck and like, can't, oh, yeah. can't find a safe place. Everything's going to be great for them. Um, totally great. I'm so glad that Trump really like, you know, made their lives better. Oh, I'm going to get depressed all don't over again. Don't get depressed. Okay. Oh, <laughs> right after I say that, I'm like, wait. You're listening to Sagittarian Matters with Nicole Georges. Do you have tips for young comics journalists or for young cartoonists who want to, I guess this is two questions. Do you have tips for young cartoonists who want to do something that's politically valuable right now? Mm -hmm. And, or do you have tips for young comics journalists? I think, you know, it's important to kind of do your homework with, with journalism, um, to kind of find other journalism that you like, whether it's other cartoonists doing comics journalism or really just, you know, for me, like, I know this is so typical, but I really loved the New York, the reporting in the New Yorker, like mm-hmm. this kind of long form, um, kind of narrative reporting, you know, I thought it was really excellent. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, diagramming them a little bit like unpacking like okay how is the author of this story you know using these different characters to tell different parts of this story and how are they using information and you know i would read interviews with them there's a a website called neiman lab um n-e-i-m-a-n and it's all it's like the Neiman Foundation is a foundation that is like a journalism foundation and they have a lot of news about journalism and they also have this thing called um, Annotated Tuesday. I think it's Annotated Tuesday or Annotated Friday. Um, but they'll have a journalist take like a long form work of theirs and kind of, it's kind of like the director's commentary on a DVD. They mm. like will highlight certain sentences and like kind of talk about what was behind that um, little bit of reporting and like what went into reporting this and that. And so I think it's really good to um, look at how other journalists talk about their work and their craft and how they do it. Um, learn basic journalistic ethics, like don't make stuff up and um, don't lie. Um, very important now in this era where everything is fake news. Um, but also just to go out and do it. Like, 
journalism it's it's really intimidating it's it's a little bit scary to ask someone if you can interview them and you you feel like you're not going to ask the right questions or you're going to look stupid or you know maybe they don't want to talk to you um and that stuff doesn't go away for a long time but you kind of the only way to get over that is by just doing it um and just making work like you know, you can read as many books about the craft of journalism as you want, but until you go out and do it and make mistakes and make some bad work, um, you won't be a journalist. So get that part over with. That's my advice. Uh, just a, do it. Just do it. That's good. I think that's great advice. Um, I want to know if you have anything <laughs> to say about or how you... Um, how you think about going outside of your own culture and reporting on that. Um, I noticed, I saw like this part in your book that stuck out to me. And also we talk about this in my class at California college of the arts is like mm-hmm. how to best discuss in your work groups that are not your own. So in your book, you have one of the characters talking about, you know, going outside of your language, your religion, your class mm-hmm. outside of your culture, and then becoming the narrator of that. Mm-hmm. What are your personal ethics or thoughts? Like, how do you personally go about doing that? I mean, like without it being think, like anthropological, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think it's, you just need to be really considerate of all of those questions. I don't think it should keep you from doing things, mm-hmm. you know, um, because that is like one way to, to deal with that problem is just like, well, well, I won't report on anything that is not exactly me. Um, but that's kind of a cop-out, I think. You know, there's going to there's gonna be no perfect way to do this. Journalism is difficult and it's messy. And, you know, some, some journalists themselves argue that there's no way to be a journalist and do all the right things, that um, it's kind of immoral to be a journalist. Um, and I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think that you have to, like, you know, the same way we talk a lot about, like, you have to accept that you're like part of the, the white supremacist problem in America, you know, that because you are benefiting from it, like it's an uncomfortable thing to, to admit to yourself, but you have to just like face it. Um, and so I think with, with journalism about, about things that aren't, you know, my white liberal bubble, it's just kind of like doing it, doing the best job that you can. And, making sure that like how do you like, give instructions for this um i don't know uh, just try not to be an asshole i guess <laughs> like you know and that's like i don't know if that's like you know there's like a checklist there but just kind of being respectful of people it's just basic respect and being thorough about how you're reporting things and kind of just always asking yourself that question, like, am I doing this to the best of my abilities mm-hmm. and understanding that you're never going to be like this perfect, you know, beyond reproach, perfect journalist. Um, someone's going to have a problem with it probably, but you should still do it. I don't know, but just don't be an asshole. Don't be an asshole. Really? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's different than, you know, because generally my students will be writing fiction, and so they'll be like, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. like a 
heterosexual black man and I would like to make a comic about white lesbians and white moms or, you know, or mm-hmm. like lesbians and moms. Like what, what do I do? Do I just try to meet one? And you're like, well, yeah, but like try to meet more than one of that <laughs> yeah. kind of person or, you know, or like try to meet them and see what they actually think, actually ask them, then draw it, then show it to them. But with journalism, you don't necessarily need to, I mean, I don't know. I know like in my work, that's autobiographical. I don't really love to show it to people because my mm-hmm. work is about the emotional truth of the situation, whereas journalism is much more journalistic. I mean, that's what I always say. I'm always like, God, it's not journalism. <laughs> I don't have to get all the facts. Thank God. The facts don't have to be, you know, like it's not meant for that. Anyway. Yeah. Um, well, one of my one of my listeners who appears to be a reader of yours and possibly is also a comics journalist asked what you learned about working from primary sources from rolling blackouts because you had so Hmm. many tapes. Oh, what did I learn? God, I just did it like the worst possible way. I recorded everything and I just didn't, didn't like take notes on any of it as I was doing it. I just left it all to the end. And then, you know, I spent like a year transcribing all that stuff and I think it taught me how to like just kind of keep track of, of what you're recording. Um, and, you know, maybe don't transcribe everything. But I don't know. It's, it's hard to know, like, when you're reporting on a story, it's hard to know, okay, I'm definitely going to use this, like, sentence that they just said, but I'm not going to use this five minutes that they go off on a tangent. To me, it's very important to use actual dialogue. I don't, you know, for my Israel memoir, because it's a memoir and I didn't have a recorder with me, you know, there's a lot of dialogue that's recreated um, that kind of, you know, I didn't make stuff up, but I had to kind of remember like, well, what was the situation and what did we probably say? Um, But with the rolling blackouts, everything is something that someone actually said. To me, that's, that's really important. I think different comics journalists have different ways of going about this, but... I don't know. I, I try to record everything. Um, but I think that's good. I mean, I've, I, don't know. Yeah. I feel like the most valuable things I know about comics are from learning them the worst way, like the caveman way. Like I know <laughs> yeah. that fire is hot because I have just yeah. stuck my hand directly into a fire enough times, <laughs> like more than yeah. once that I'm like, Oh, hot. Oh, like, don't do that again. Yeah. But I mean, like anything I know in comics, I've learned from doing it like the most circuitous way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a thing that takes a long time. So to a certain extent, it's not like you're, there's going to be some secret to making it quick and fast. But yeah. yeah. But like that kind of thing, like being like, okay, I mean, even for the podcast, you know, I know like as I'm going with somebody if I can take notes about where things are, it makes the editing process for myself and my producer six million bajillion times easier. Yeah. Well, I think that's something that comes with, like, getting better at what you do, right? So, like, when I did the reporting for Rolling Blackouts, like, that was really my first time doing a big project like that. And I didn't know what was going to end up in the book because I had, you know, it took me a while to figure out after we get back, after we got back, it took me a while to figure out what shape the book was going to take. So definitely while I was there, I didn't know what I was going to be using. But now when I do 
reporting for uh, kind of shorter stuff, um, I do have a better idea of like, okay, that whole conversation was useless. I'm not going to use that. Um, but this conversation I think was good. I think like, yeah, the better that you get at doing your job, the more, you know, like, okay, this is going to go in. This is not, and I don't need to transcribe that one conversation that just happened. So yeah, it's, you know, yeah, you live and you learn and you make mistakes and you learn. I like that. Um, there's one part in your book, I can't find it right now, but where your friend is, who you were traveling with, is talking about how, like, you know, like, she was looking, for her, the ingredients to a story are, you know, the subject, getting new information that challenges them, and then they have a change of heart. Like, Mm -hmm. something unexpected happens. Do you have that kind of formula or idea in your head when you are going into a situation or writing about, like, when you're finding the narrative thread through a journalistic story is that kind of your guiding principle too well just change in general is that's what life what makes up life you Mm -hmm. know it's kind of impossible to to have us to like be watching something for a while and not see change there you know even if you are going to just like sit on your front steps and observe you know your street there's going to be change you know, in a, in a day of looking at your street, there's going to be change happening in, in the ways that you think about your street. Um, and so I think that, yeah, when I'm working on a story, I'm looking at, at change like, let's see, for this Jill Stein thing that I did last year, it wasn't necessarily, it was a profile of her, but it wasn't necessarily a story about how she changed, mm-hmm. um, like her character. It ended up being also a story about third parties and the American political system and how that was changing. And so that's not really something that like I thought of consciously as I was working on it, but you're kind of looking for that thread. Like what is the through line for this? Like what is the story about besides, you know, what the headline is going to be about? Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, that's like really important. Like you do the reporting and then you find like, what are the kind of like universal themes and like, how are we, how are we seeing something move and, and be dynamic? Um, so yeah, it just kind of like you, it kind of, it reveals itself to you in a way. I don't know. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. How did your trip that you took for rolling blackouts change you? Um, it, well, taught me a lot about journalism. You know, that was the point and Mm -hmm. it worked. Um, I definitely had a kind of very naive understanding of journalism going into it. You know, I kind of, I, my friends, my journalist friends to me were very heroic. Um, they, you know, they go out, they report, they like get these stories from people and they bring back the truth and they reveal it to us and we all learn from them. Um, and when you see journalism up close, like you do see how messy it is and, the difficult decisions that you have to make and like the ethical um, problems that you run into that don't always have very obvious answers. You know, there's, there's no guidebook. There's no like, like app that you can like type in like, okay, in this situation, well, what is the right thing to do? Um, You know, you're at the end of the day, journalism is a person talking to another person. um, And, and people are flawed and people have emotions. And so, it's going to be very messy. So I definitely came back with 
a better understanding of how hard this job is. Um, but I also came back really wanting to do more and to do, you know, more of it on my own. Um, it's addictive. Like it's an opportunity to like, to look, follow your curiosity and ask people questions about things and, you know, ask them if you can follow them around and look at their life, you know, and go to people's houses and, you know, talk to them about their childhoods and stuff. Like it's a really like incredible, like thing to be able to do. So I think it's worth the, uh, the messiness that comes with it. I love that. I'm so happy to have you as a comics journalist in the world. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Well, like, like even like the comic you just did about sanctuary cities, I thought oh, yeah. was so great. Like just even right. like, like having like not only having you make these like giant books of things or like, you know, like beautifully illustrated content for online magazines or whatever, but like having things that are like simple and direct they have to deal with what's going on right now. And also they have your own perspective, you know, involved yeah, in like your narrator's physicality. Yeah. That's like kind of, yeah, I feel like that's something that I kind of want to do more of now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I read a lot of news and I think it is hard if you don't have a, like, if you haven't been keeping up with an issue for a while, then when something dramatic happens, you won't have the context for it. And it's hard to understand. And there's a lot of different articles trying to like tell you what's going on. And so for me, it's like when this stuff comes up that I, you know, do have some context where I'm like, okay, maybe I can help explain this because I know what it's like to come at this fresh and not know what's going on. Um, So that's kind of, my goal with these, like, reading the news um, comics is just, like, let's read the news together and let's talk about, like, you know, it is important to be critical of the news that we're reading, like, the stuff that's being omitted from articles or maybe certain biases that um, that reporters bring into things. Like, um, my husband's from Argentina, and so I spent a lot of time down there, and, you know, they're the news that that they have is like i was like i don't understand one paper is like totally left wing the other one's totally right wing and both of them are really biased like how do you know what's going on and he's like well you just have to understand the issues and know and once you know what each one's biases are then you can kind of triangulate like the truth and it was like a good lesson in like kind of understanding that yeah there's always going to be biases involved with you know what you're reading and it's good to just kind of i don't know keep that in mind when you're reading stuff like and don't take anything at face value i'm not trying to say don't trust the media but also don't trust the media i guess well this is like the lesson i felt like i learned by discovering zines when i was a teenager ah yeah it's like by discovering zines you're seeing someone where someone's not pretending to be objective they're like no Here's my yeah. bias. Mm-hmm. Here's what I think. Like, here's my opinion on everything. There's no, you know, there's no facade of any. So then you like, you look at that and you're like, oh, this is a completely unbiased, you know, like this person is biased and this is very clear. And yeah. I know exactly what they're saying. So if I take that and then I look at like the conservative newspaper in my town versus like the weekly newspaper in my town, then I can see their biases a little bit more, yeah. even though they're trying to pretend to be objective. 
not to be a Seinfeld. But have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of Stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts. Because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday, and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and Blue Apron and whatever, but in the meantime, thank you. We appreciate your support, and I look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. That was Ponyo's voice. Don't be scared. Bye. What would you say to anyone in the current administration... If you could get their undivided attention for 10 minutes. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) Yeah. I think I would try to ask them a bunch of questions. I don't know. It's, you know, I really want to understand what the what the goal is here. Um, Like, I just really don't understand you know i kind of understand what trump's goal is it's just like i don't think he cares about anything like i think he just wants you know to feed his ego but for someone like like bannon like is he really just trying to like create chaos or does he have some kind of like vision for like a better country in mind like i just i want to figure them out a little more so that we could then kind of help ourselves triangulate our our efforts a little bit more. I don't think that, you know, with people like that, I don't think having them for 10 minutes, you're going to, like, be able to teach them anything. But maybe you can, like, learn the enemy a little bit better Well, another, by talking to them. I, I mean, honestly, like, this is, it's very maddening. Like, when my brain starts trying to make order of everything that's happening and it can't find an order... Or like a rhythm or like it can't make sense of everything that's going on. It is crazy making. And that's that's on purpose. That's what they want to do. Um, I don't know if your listeners have seen the Adam Curtis documentary Hypernormalization. Probably. But not. I recommend it. It's kind of long. It's like I don't know, two and a half hours or something. But mm-hmm. it's worth watching because he kind of it it's talking about the last forty years. And what has happened in politics, um, kind of, you know, neoliberalism and all that. Um, But one thing that really stood out to me is he talks about how um, in Russia, this kind of the whole idea of putting false information out there and then letting people know that you're putting false information out there. um, That was like a purposeful idea. Because if the government, if the Kremlin was, you know, funding all of these different groups, including opposition groups, and then they told the people that they were funding all of this, then nobody knew what was real. And I think that the Trump 
people have really kind of harnessed that energy of like, and Breitbart, you know, if you question what reality is, and if nobody knows who's lying, who's telling the truth, is the media lying, or is Trump lying, and then it doesn't matter if he's lying or not, because then no one believes anything. And you're too tired trying to figure out what the truth is that you won't try to do anything anymore. Um, so it's, it is mind boggling. And that's why, like, you know, like we were talking about before, it's important to try and keep our sanity and try not to just get exhausted by like this, like suspension of reality that's, that's going on. That's huge. It's very huge. Um, well, somebody asked a different question, which is almost the same of all the people you've met. If you could get Trump or we could say Bannon because Trump seems out there to know one of them, who would it be and why? Uh, God, I don't know. You know, like is the, is the question, the goal of the question, like someone that will like change Bannon into a good person. Yes. You know, I don't know if that's <laughs> possible. Like someone that will put a put a face to one of the things that he's doing, or that could change the hearts and minds of the iciest fascist. Yeah, I don't know, but maybe like if they uh, tried getting waterboarded, maybe they would understand <laughs> how horrible it is. You know, like maybe if like I, I don't know if it's so much a person, but like okay, you have to live through something that other people have to live through you have to know what it's like to be like in aleppo when there's like you don't know if you're going to die or not and let's see you come back from that and then you know do all of this stuff that you're doing so i don't know some so i guess i would want them to meet somebody that can kidnap them and take them to (laughs) another place and then leave them there that's valuable because I thought I was like, you're going to have to bring a lot of gear if you're like, okay, we have a short time together. I brought, I brought a water waterboarding station. Yeah. I'm going to set it up uh, just for a little while. Stay you're going to get waterboarded just to see what it's like. It's only fair. It's going to take a couple minutes. Don't worry. Well, you know, even park rangers, when they're doing park ranger training, they have to get mm-hmm. maced in the face as oh, really? part of their training to know how it feels. Oh. Yeah. I had a friend that went to park ranger school and there was like a day where they all got maced in the face. Wow. <laughs> so that they could understand like what they were, you know, like what they were working with. So it just, it just park makes sense. Park rangers have to like mace people a lot? Yeah, they're like forest cops. Because I guess a lot of times... Who are uh, they macing? Criminal, criminals. People, <laughs> people will um, run to the, run to the forests. Like go like when they're like uh, like on the run or on the lamb or they'll they'll run so like they have to be forest cops um, and they have <laughs> to have almost like a weird like mini police training to do their job wow. like a lot of people but... like go to the fort woods to like kill themselves or they'll you know go to the woods know. to hide something or to hide themselves from something and anyway that is just that that's a little tidbit for you. Wow. But so it just makes sense that if you have great power. That is a whole fascinating world. I know. Yeah. Um, it was it was a long time ago, but if you're ever if you're ever looking for a forest cop source, I got I got your source right here. 
what okay, else? Good. Wait, we have to talk about something light really fast. What do you think? Okay. What do you think it's like to date a cartoonist? <laughs> I think it's lovely. I don't know. Um, you know, my husband's a cartoonist too, so I should know. But he's not really as like unbearable as I am. Like, feel like you know when when I have writer's block or something, I just get so upset and I get so consumed by it. And I am, you know, when you're working on a project, you're just like obsessing over it and you can't talk about anything else. I think it must be exhausting. You need like such reserves of patience um, to deal with someone like that. So I think it's probably very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they'll make you a nice birthday card. They'll make with a drawing it. on it. So, yeah, it's true. And if you're, yeah. if neither of you remembered to buy a wedding gift for somebody, if you're dating a cartoonist, they can really turn it out. Like they can oh, turn yeah. out like I've like made a, lots of portraits. Yeah, portraits of the bride and groom that you make like that morning. You're like fuck, and then they have a beautiful thing. Um, Although I wonder, so, like recently, I was like, I don't think people want my drawing. I think they just wanted the blender. No, Maybe I shouldn't be giving them art. <laughs> No, I think they really... You don't like, think so? No, I really I really think it's valuable. I think a, ha a handmade thing, like, especially, like, this Christmas, no offense to them, but my family sent me some real trash. Just, like, gifts that I was, like, I wish that this family member would have just, like, they're not even an artist. I wish they have like would have, like, written my name on a piece of paper, drawn their estimation of a dog, <laughs> and then sent that to me as my gift. Because it's personal, yeah. and they've touched it. And it feels like a thing that came from one human being to another human being. Yeah, that is nice. And it's it's just like that that tangibility that we're like missing in the internet age, like that objects actually have energy attached to them. You know, like the feeling of finishing a book that a person made versus finishing reading a website. Um, exactly. But just taking that yeah. to its next logical step. So I, I think they probably really do appreciate your drawings, even though. Okay, good. I'll keep doing them then. You're probably, <laughs> you may be sick of them, but I bet people are so excited to get them. Okay, good then. Good. Well, what are you working on now? How can people find you? How can people support you? Uh, Well, I have a website that I don't update very much. Perfect. Um, but that's sarahglidden.com. And I don't know, I've been putting a lot of stuff on Instagram um, I think I'm just Sarah Glidden at Sarah Glidden, one word on Instagram. Um, yeah, find me on Instagram, and I really should update my website more. I it's bad not to. Well, so I want people to buy Rolling Blackouts. Oh, yeah, you should do that. Yeah. The, the last question. This is weird, but can you recommend any sources for learning about comics, comic arts in the contemporary Middle East? Like, do you know, did you encounter anything like that? That was a reader question. Yeah, um, there's an anthology called Samandal, S-A-M-A-N-D-A-L. Mm -hmm. um, they are based in, in Beirut, mm -hmm. and they put out, I think they've been around for a while now, maybe like seven or eight years, um, and they do an anthology, like all different artists, but people from the Middle East, also French cartoonists, um, but mostly Middle Eastern cartoonists, and it's in Arabic, English, and French. Um, and they're really great, and there's some really good work in there. Um, and they had a whole um, 
you know, the government tried to shut them down because somebody drew a cartoon that, um, you know, they thought was sacrilegious, like it made fun of Jesus or something. Um, and they almost got shut down, but I think they're okay now. And uh, I think they're a really great um, anthology and group to look at. I think they're online. So if you just search for Samandal Comics, you'll find them. And awesome. that's where I would start. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. What's your sign? I hope I'm a Gemini. Oh, a Gemini. Yeah. Directly opposite the Sagittarius on the astrological chart. Oh, really? What does that mean? It means Are that we we're, enemies? We're, we're either we're the most attracted and repulsed to each other. Oh. We're the most... At the same time? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it could go like either way. Like we're like most attracted like Sagittarius and Gemini's are like most excited by each other but also can be most just like ah <laughs> wow like Interesting. we we were in love but then it didn't work out well, I always feel bad because I don't know anything about other signs hmm. um and I mostly only know things about Gemini's because people who are interested in astrology tell me about oh this is what Gemini's are but I really need to like you know when someone says oh I'm a Leo I'm like okay <laughs> I don't even know what month that is, so I have some work to do learning I, about astrology. I really like the idea of you just being like, cool, okay. <laughs> All right. They're like, I'm That's a Taurus, line, right? you know what that means. You're like, y- yep. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe maybe if you ever need a moment to distract yourself from the incredibly terrible events of the world, uh, you just become an astrology buff. Who knows? Yeah. Good idea. I'll go down that rabbit hole. Go down a different rabbit hole, and you're like, oh, of course, yeah. of course, Trump's a whatever. I think he, he might be a Gemini. I don't know what he. Is. I can't remember what he is. I just think he's a Voldemort, probably. Um, well, he's a Voldemort. Yeah. Thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you. And yeah. thanks for yeah. all that you're doing for the world right now. I just, I really, I oh, really gosh. appreciate your <laughs> perspective and your view and your work right now. It's of such value. So. Oh, thanks. I guess I'll keep doing it then. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.